Amen. That was good. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I had intended to finish this chapter last week, but after last week's sermon, I didn't feel like I had fully explain Paul's final statement that we have the mind of Christ. And so we will again this week look at chapter 2, the end of chapter 2, in an attempt to both tie together a few different strands from the first few chapters of this book and to really drive home Paul's main emphasis in this section. So to that end, my plan tonight is to first look at verse 16 and then to zoom out a little bit and look at the first two chapters as a whole and then to zoom out even more across the Bible and conclude by applying what we have seen in very practical ways. That's where we're headed. I guess you'll have to judge if we actually get there or not, but either way, let's jump into our text. 1 Corinthians 2, I'll start in verse 14 and go through the end of the chapter, verse 16. Hear the word of our Lord. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we, we have the mind of Christ. Thus ends the reading of God's perfect and holy word for us. Let's pray to begin our time together. Father, we need you to speak tonight through your Holy Spirit, through your word, to teach us more of what it is to have the mind of Christ. Indeed, even more than that, to help us see Christ, to see what filled his mind, what stirred his heart. And Lord, by seeing him and his love, help us to see what we are in light of it, in light of his work on the cross, that foolish message of him hanging on the cross in our place. Please bless us this night in Christ's name. Amen. For those who might be just joining us in the study of 1 Corinthians, Paul is writing to a church that was struggling. Their pride and their worldliness and their toleration of serious sin in the church had brought them to a breaking point. They were headed towards disaster, and Paul had begun to gently but clearly rebuke them for their sin. The first chapter contains one of Paul's most notable statements about the Christian life. He says that the word of the cross... That is, the proclamation of Jesus Christ crucified in the place of sinners is foolishness to the world. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And he goes on to further explain that our disposition to this word of the cross is the only thing that distinguishes the wise and the fool. The wise man will recognize and love the word of the cross, and he will determine for that word of the cross to be his only boast, his only foundation for life and ministry. And conversely, the fool is the one who rejects the word of the cross as utter foolishness. But this division of the wise man and the fool is not simply an intellectual decision. It's not merely a mental assent to the proper evaluation of the cross based upon neutral, rational logic. As we read a moment ago, the natural man does not accept the things of the flesh. It doesn't happen. Man in his natural state, his natural fallen condition doesn't consider the word of the cross, to be the wisdom of God. He sees it as pure folly. He derides it. It's silliness. It's nonsense. But not only that, Paul says. 
He ends verse 14 by stating the natural man isn't even able to understand the things of the spirit because they are spiritually discerned. The natural man isn't just mistaken. He's ill-equipped. He lacks the moral ability to even rightly see the things of God. That's the state of natural man, the man born in his sinful state, the man without the spirit of God in him. And that's our state outside of Christ. Each and every one of us are born that way. Now, Paul then moves to contrast the natural man with the spiritual man in verses 15 and 16. And the spiritual man, we must remember, is not spiritual because he is an especially pious individual. He's not naturally a more holy person. He's not a person more in tune with the spiritual things. He's not a man a little more divinely minded. The spiritual person is only so because the spirit of God has invaded his life. And because of that spirit's work, the person is now able to discern spiritual things. And so let me try and briefly summarize verses 15 and 16. The spiritual man, that is the person changed by the spirit and called into fellowship with Christ, judges all things. That is, he approves of, not merely judges, but approves of all the things of the Spirit that he has heard taught by the apostles or read in their writings. But he himself is judged by no one. That is, no natural man approves the faith and life of a spiritual man. Like we discussed last week, just as the cross and the glory of Christ is foolishness to the natural man, so are those who love the things of God. They are fools to the natural man. And so spiritual men are judged wrongly by the world. The world believes that we are fools because we believe the word of cross to be wisdom. Then on to verse 16 where Paul again quotes from Isaiah. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? That is, no natural man apart from the work of the Holy Spirit has any access to the mind of God. Go back up to verse 11. No one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Nevertheless, because the Spirit has been given to us and has changed our proud rebellion into willing submission, we yearn for the unimaginable glory of God and we see the cross as the very wisdom and power of God. That is, we have the mind of Christ. That's the culmination of Paul's argumentation in this last chapter and a half. To be wise, to be spiritual, to be full of the Spirit is to have the very mind of Christ and is to see the cross as the wisdom of God. That's what it means to have the mind of Christ. It's to evaluate the word of the cross, the message that Jesus Christ came as the perfect God-man to die in the place of sinful men and women on the cross of Calvary and has been raised three days later in accordance with Scripture. This is the wisdom of God, the power of God, indeed the very mind of Christ. And Paul, we should note, is not novel in his argumentation here. This isn't something new that Paul is just pulling out of his hat. The scriptures themselves make this emphasis that the cross is the climax of God's redemptive work. It is the high point of the revelation of the wisdom of God and his salvific plan. Jesus often spoke this way. Turn with me in your copy of God's word to Mark chapter 8. The gospel of Mark chapter 8. And we can see exactly how Jesus thought about the cross. What is the mind of Christ? How does it relate to the cross? Well, that's a great question for us to start answering by examining Jesus' own words about the cross. Mark chapter 8, Jesus had just fed the 4,000. He had healed a blind man. And in verse 31, he says these words. 
And he, that is Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, Mark says. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Jesus was teaching plainly about the cross, Mark says, about the fact that he must suffer many things and be rejected and be killed and that he would rise after three days. It was no secret. It wasn't a surprise to him. He wasn't beating around the bush, and yet the disciples failed to understand. Now turn over one more page to chapter 9. Chapter 9, verse 31, where Mark tells us again of Jesus' words. He, that is Jesus, was teaching the disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. The mind of Christ is clear. He was focused upon the cross, the climax of God's redemptive plan, but the disciples didn't even have categories for that. They didn't yet have eyes to see what wisdom God was going to reveal on the cross. And turn over again one more chapter to chapter 10. Mark 10, 32, we see the same thing. The mind of Christ is focused on the cross. 10, 32. And taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was going to happen, happen to him, saying, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. I don't mean to beat a dead horse, but I think the point is significant. If we are to have the mind of Christ, then we need to realize that Christ's mind was focused on the cross, on what God intended to do on the cross, on what would be affected by the cross. And he wasn't obsessed with the cross in a sort of morbid or suicidal way. He wasn't a lunatic searching for a way to hasten his own end. Rather, he was compelled by love and sober-minded determination to honor his father by fulfilling the plan that he had agreed to before the foundation of the world. This is the eternal covenant of redemption made before all time where the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit covenanted together in a glorious plan to redeem sinners through the substitutionary death of the Son on the cross. Christ knew his role. He knew his mission. He knew that his ministry would be ultimately fruitless if he were unable to complete the climax of this agreement, which was to die a cursed sinner's death. He knew this. And one of the reasons that Jesus knew this was because his coming death was foretold before he ever arrived on the scene. He wasn't the first person to know about this. The wisdom of the coming death of the Messiah is plastered throughout the Old Testament. Remember with me Luke 24, where two disciples are walking on the road to Emmaus. I'll tell you the story. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to. But Luke 24 is after the resurrection. And two disciples were walking and talking about the things that had just happened in Jerusalem, which included the death of Jesus. And as they were walking, Jesus draws near to them, doesn't reveal who he is, and he asks them, what are they talking about? And they respond in verse 18, are you the only one in Jerusalem who doesn't know about the things that have happened? And Jesus said to them, what things? And they said to them, concerning this Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death 
and crucified him. We had hoped that he was going to be the one that redeemed Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women from our company came and amazed us. They went to the tomb early in the morning, and they didn't find his body. And they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went down to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. They didn't see him there. And Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. That's the Old Testament he's talking about. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory? And then beginning with Moses and the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them all the scriptures concerning himself. It was necessary, Jesus said, that the Christ should suffer. The cross was central to the plan of God. Oh, to have been there, to have heard that sermon, the God of all scripture himself teaching about himself from the Old Testament. Where do you think he went? What do you think that sermon was like? Do you think he went through the Levitical system and showed them how all the sacrifices before him pointed to his great sacrifice? And how all the priests before him pointed to him as the great high priest. Do you think he went to the kings and showed how he was the promised son of David that was going to sit on the throne forever? Or do you think he went to the Psalms and connected those to his words on the cross? Like when he said, I thirst. Fulfilling the words of Psalm 69, tasting the full curse and separation that we had earned. Or maybe he reminded them of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or did he take them to Psalm 31? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. But certainly he wouldn't finish that sermon without at least once going to Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Later in that chapter... Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, and he has put him to grief. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. In God's mysterious providence, that moment on the cross of apparent defeat became the moment of actual divine victory. The cross and the grave, the moments of intense shame, became the start of his ascent into glory. And the moment of seeming foolishness is in fact the moment of clearest divine wisdom. That plan, that goal of redemption, the revelation of the wisdom on the cross was on Christ's mind because it had been on Christ's mind from all of eternity. It was on his mind in the garden when God promised the coming seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. It was on his mind while Moses and the prophets were writing their scripture. It was on Christ's mind while he was here in his earthly ministry. And it's on Christ's mind now. And I say it's on his mind now because that's the means, the cross is the means that God has chosen to save sinners. The proclamation of the cross of Christ, as Paul has made clear in this chapter, is the only foundation of any Christian ministry, any Christian sermon, and any Christian's life. If we are to have the mind of Christ, then we are to have a mind that is constantly drawn back to the cross of Jesus. A mind that interprets events in light of the cross, interprets ideas in light of the cross, interprets our feelings in light of what we know to be true about the cross. In short, if we're people filled with the Spirit and possessing the mind of Christ, then we ought to be a cross-centered people. The cross should be evident wherever the people of God are. And I don't mean that we wear little crosses. I mean that our behavior 
our speech, our motivations, our desires, our goals, our marriages, our relationships, even our affections are shaped by and connected to the cross of Jesus. And so to that end, I'd like to spend the rest of tonight thinking about some ways that we possess the mind of Christ, or we should possess the mind of Christ. What it would look like for us to have the mind of Christ and to be cross-centered people, as Paul is calling us to be. And so a first point of application. When the mind of Christ grips us, it changes how we think about our lives. When the mind of Christ grips us, it changes how we think about our lives. Prior to seeing the cross as God's wisdom, we all lived and believed that this whole life is about me. We live for my comfort, my peace of mind, my prosperity, my stuff, my pride, my desires, my plans. Life is all about me. But when God's Spirit worked in our lives and let us see the wisdom at the cross, when we realized that our whole lives are not supposed to be about us, we learned it's actually supposed to be focused on Him. The Bible teaches this in many places, but one of the clearest places is in the book of Romans. Paul spends 11 chapters explaining about Christ's sacrifice. And then in chapter 12 tells us that we should be living sacrifices ourselves. And what Paul's doing is building upon imagery from the Old Testament. You see, in the Old Testament, there were two main sacrifices that the Israelites brought. The first was a sacrifice of atonement for sin. It was propitiatory. That is, it assuaged the wrath of God that was pointed towards them for their sin. And then the Israelites would then give a second sacrifice, a sacrifice of thanksgiving to God, because he had first accepted their sacrifice and forgave their sins. The second sacrifice was a dedicatory sacrifice. And that's the language that Paul picks up on in Romans. In light of Christ's propitiatory and atoning sacrifice explained in these first 11 chapters, Paul then says that we should be dedicatory sacrifices. Sacrifices ourselves, living sacrifices. We are the sacrifice of thanksgiving. That's what he's talking about in Romans 12. Present yourself as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We have to get this right. If we put that before the first 11 chapters, we screw it all up. We don't live holy lives in order to have our sins atoned for. We don't offer sacrifices so that God will love us. Christ has already earned that on the cross. We've already been forgiven. The propitiatory sacrifice has already been offered. We've already been atoned for. Instead, we reflexively offer our entire lives to God because we have already been saved on the cross. And that's the good news. That's why we need to get the cross right. A mind that has been gripped by Christ, that is focused on the cross, will not try to earn ourselves into heaven. Not try to perform our good works in order to merit God's love for us. Rather, the cross reminds us that because we are already beloved by Christ... There's nothing left for us to earn. It's already been done. And because it has already been done by Christ on the cross, then I'm compelled by love to offer my whole life as a sacrifice, as a dedicatory offering in service to God. I don't serve in order to be loved. I serve because I have already been loved on the cross. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you if you understand that. Do you know that love? Are you resting and trusting completely in the work of Christ and Christ alone for your salvation? Or are you trying to 
earn your way into heaven by being a good person. Earn your way into his graces, into his good favor by your efforts. Do you see your life as being all about you and your preferences and your desires? Or is your life a dedicatory sacrifice of thanksgiving and praise to him? A sacrifice of spiritual worship? If you have not yet trusted in Jesus, if you have not completely surrendered to him and his work on your behalf as your only hope, then know that you're running down a path of sin and death. No man can make himself right before God, and no man is good enough to meet God's bar of perfection. Come to Jesus tonight and believe in his message of the cross, and you too can be saved. And if you are trusting in Christ, then remind yourself regularly of the cross, and he will help you keep your life focused on him. Your being a living sacrifice for him will indeed become easy when you're constantly reminded of the cross. If Christ gave so much for me, how could I keep a grudge against him or against her? If Christ died to wash me of my sin, how could I go back to that sinful habit? If I've been filled with the Holy Spirit, how could I defile myself with this unholy choice over here? In short, if Christ gave up everything to give me life, how could I not give my life to him? When the mind of Christ grips us, it changes how we think about our lives. Second, not only will the mind of Christ change how we think about our lives, it also removes our snobbery. The cross, or the, the mind of, when the mind of Christ grips us, it removes our snobbery. Snobbery of any kind is so unbecoming of a Christian. It was part of the problem in the Corinthian church. They were being snobs about what kind of speaker they wanted about what kind of rhetorical flair that this person would have. They were speaker snobs, we could say. To borrow an illustration from an old Scottish preacher, they would have a real problem with a plain preacher. A preacher perhaps like the Old Testament prophet Amos. Said, uh, Amos, could you, could you stand up over there and tell us a little about yourself? Well, yeah, I'm, lately I've been a done a little bit of uh, fig tree tending. Really? Is that it? Yeah, well, well mostly. I mean, I, I did a little shepherding, but mostly just the figs. Well, Amos, you're not helping us out. We're trying to print flyers and get a bunch of people at this conference. Nobody's going to come and listen to a fig farmer. We need some more pizzazz. We need a little more flash. Evangelicalism today has this same kind of problem. You can pick the snobbery. It could be rhetorical snobbery, intellectual snobbery, class snobbery, racial snobbery, financial snobbery, or doctrinal snobbery. It's all alive and well in the church today, and wherever you see it, whenever you see it in yourself, we have to remember that it's totally counter to the cross of Christ. If we possess the mind of Christ, then any kind of boasting is totally undermined. We didn't affect our salvation. Christ came down and took action. We didn't embrace the message of the cross because we were so clever and had it all figured out. We were unable to, Paul says, apart from the prior work of the Holy Spirit to reveal the wisdom of God to us. And so what then is left of our boasting? It's gone. Any gifts I have come from his hands. Any graces I've experienced come from him. Any service I've given have come from the Holy Spirit's work in my heart previously. Indeed, in my own strength, I'd be nothing. John Newton once wrote, 
My grace would soon be exhausted, but his is boundless as the sea. Then let me boast with holy Paul that I am nothing and Christ is all. When the mind of Christ grips us, it removes our boasting and our snobbery. Third, and related to the previous point, when the mind of Christ grips us, it motivates humble service to others. When the mind of Christ grips us, it motivates humble service to others. Billy mentioned it earlier, but there's another passage where Paul connects the mind of Christ with humble service. It's Philippians chapter 2, where Paul talks about Christ's mind, which he gives us when we come to him, and how that mind propels us towards humble service. Philippians 2.5 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be held on to, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christ's mind was dominated by loving service to others, service even unto death. John Stott wrote a wonderful book called The Cross of Christ. I commend it to you. But he said in that book that what dominated Christ's mind was not the living of his life, but the giving of his life. What dominated Christ's mind was not the living of his life, but the giving of his life. And I find that quite impactful. So often I get caught up in living my life, my schedule, my to-do list, my timeline, my finances, my comfort, my priorities. But Christ was not so. His mind was dominated with the giving of his life, which we saw earlier from Mark. He was constantly working towards, constantly teaching toward, pointing towards the cross. He was instructing others constantly about how he came not to be served, but to serve. And when we have a life that's really gripped by the mind of Christ, when the cross really takes hold in our lives, we'll see a growing willingness to humbly serve and lay down our lives for others. I'll stop demanding that my life take the priority and rather seek to give place to honor others. We'll begin to share our toys with other children. We'll use our tongues for building up rather than tearing down. We'll give away our time and our money to help others in need. We'll begin to spend our time, which is the most valuable commodity we have, doing the hard work of prayer for others. In short, when the mind of Christ grips us, it motivates humble service towards others. Lastly, and briefly, when the mind of Christ grips us, it unties our tongues. When the mind of Christ grips us, it unties our tongues. When I realize that the cross removes the sting of death, and that God has declared me to be eternally righteous because of the Son's work on the cross, and that no earthly power can stand against me, then I'll be willing to use my tongue to declare this message of the cross to others. I'll be willing to endure the shame, endure the lecture, endure being ostracized, endure being called a fool. Indeed, if necessary, I'll be willing to endure the threats and beatings, just like Peter and John in Acts chapter 4. You remember Acts 4? Peter and John taken into custody and charged explicitly not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. What, what did they say? They say, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. But we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. 
We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. That's the mark of a heart that has been gripped by the cross and that person has put on the mind of Christ. I cannot but speak of what I have seen and heard. I want to go to the coffee shop and find that one person to speak to. I want to find one of my neighbors that hasn't yet heard the gospel from me. I cannot but speak of what I have seen and heard. And so in closing, a wise person is a cross-centered person. A person who has the mind of Christ is focused on the cross. And when we put on that mind of Christ, we'll be reminded always that we've been forgiven of every sin. We've been washed of every mistake. We've been brought into the very household of God for all of eternity. And when we're reminded of that good news, we can't help but speak of what we have seen and heard. May that be true of us as we all seek to put on the mind of Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we praise you and thank you for the gift of atonement, the gift of new life, the gift of new birth that you have given to us because the Son had his mind fixed on the cross. Help us to ever be a people mindful of the cross. Have it ever removed from us any ground of boasting to keep us humble, to keep us full of love, abounding in love as we prayed earlier. Love towards you and love towards our neighbor. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to close by singing a hymn, the name of which has escaped me. But Trey's coming. <laughs>